Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the library. Thank you all for coming. It's good to see so many smiling faces um, for our panel discussion. So this is a panel discussion um, about issues relating to immigration um, by our political science faculty, immigration and Latino Americans, and the changing demographic, changing um, horizon, as we've put it, um, in uh, US politics and uh, public discourse. And we're really excited to have our full-time faculty from political science here. This event is part of our One Book program, which is about the book by um, Jose Angel N called Illegal. He was here last week. His lecture and discussion is on our YouTube channel. If you missed it, you can get that. It's also part of our Latino American series that we're doing in partnership with the Democracy Commitment, which is a group on campus uh, working towards civic engagement and social discourse. So I thank them for their partnership. With all that being said, let me do a quick introduction and I will get out of the way and we'll get on with the discussion. Um, thank you all of you, by the way. Um, first off to my left is Mary Fafleese. Thank you, Mary. Political Science and History. To her left is Kevin Avertil. Um, political Science, yeah, <laughs> all right. Extra credit for the yeah. shout out. And to his left is Darren Shrek, all of whom um, have volunteered their time to do this and are good partners with us and have done this in the past and I'm always grateful for their time. So thank you all and I'll turn it over to you guys. Okay. Morning everybody. It's good to have such a great turnout here. Um, how many of you have had a chance to read this book? A few people in the room? Okay, that's like the vast majority have not, but that's okay, okay. <laughs> so I thought that we, when we were talking about what we wanted to cover uh, for the panel, I thought that you know, it might not be a bad idea to give you a brief, very brief history of some of the main immigration legislation that's come down over the years, how things have changed and how things have shifted. So I've got a couple of slides. I promise it won't be too painful of talking about it, but we already talked about before, we'd like this to be very interactive, and so as you have questions, just raise your hand. I mean, there's no, we're not gonna be too scripted here, so whenever you've got something to say, just raise your hand and we'll, we'll take it. Um, so I'm gonna just go ahead briefly and start us off with some, a few, try to take this off here, since I'm being recorded. And I have to stand, it's harder for me to do this sitting. Um, okay. So for those of you who have taken American History 1 before, you may have heard this, this one of the first immigration laws that was passed uh, was the Alien and Sedition Act uh, back in 1798. And the aliens in this case were the French. So it's you know, never a bad idea to have a, an anti-immigration law against the French. Uh, but this was, this was in the context of a war, of a, an undeclared naval war between uh, the US and France taking place in 1798. And so, the, if you take U.S. history, the bigger part of the law is the, is the actual Sedition Acts, but the alien part of the law just basically made it more difficult to become a U.S. citizen, trying to discourage French immigration, and that basically anybody who was a dangerous resident alien, uh, again, a French person that was causing trouble, could be deported by the government easily. And so that's one of the first pieces of legislation in the 1790s that's passed down regarding immigration. Now, if we move forward here, there are some things I left out deliberately, but in the context, for those of you again who are, have taken history before in the 1860s, and you can kind of see the context here, this is right in the middle of the Civil War, uh, the Congress actually passed a law encouraging immigration, and you could maybe understand why at that point, um, and that basically made it easier for a person to become a citizen. It was passed, not ironically, on July 4th, 1864. And so after the Civil War, you start to see a huge influx of immigrants coming into the country, particularly after 1880. So one of the things I always ask my students to think about is you know, where your own people come from. So would you be considered to be an old immigrant or a new immigrant? So if, you were, if you were, your family came over here 
uh, people that were coming over from Germany or from Scandinavian countries or from even Ireland or the British Isles, you'd be considered to be an old immigrant. You would have come over before 1880. After 1880, you see an explosion of people coming in. People coming over from Eastern Europe, from places like Greece, Italy, Russia, etc. Um, and you start to see a, a ma the major impact that they have on the nation. And so in the context of this, I left out the significant number of Asian immigrants that were coming in, in the 1880s. And if you look at, this is one of those aspects of US history that don't get mentioned often enough. Uh, the racism displayed against Chinese Americans in particular when they first came over is, is rather remarkable. Um, and you, you, know, you, you hear quite a bit, we write a lot about um, uh, the, because at the same time we also have Jim Crow laws being passed in the South, but what was also happening out in, in places like California were horrible caricatures of, of Chinese people comparing them to vermin and rats on the street and, and just awful. And Congress passes in 1882 the Chinese Exclusion Act. I mean, that's pretty much as, as blatant as you can get. Excluding Chinese people from entering the country um, and does not actually change until 1943 during the context of World War II. I also mentioned that in the early 1900s, the US and Japan negotiated what was referred to as a gentleman's agreement. The US, again, did not want huge numbers of Japanese immigrants coming into the United States, and due to some trade deals between the US and Japan, they worked out a deal that said, okay, we'll give you something in exchange. The Japanese government agreed that when, when Japanese nationals were looking to get a passport to migrate to the United States, the Japanese government would revoke them, would deny them. So again, so uh, when it came to, to Asian immigration to the United States, uh, it was, there was significant opposition to it in the 19th century and into, and into the 20th century. And then we've got a few things being passed in the, in the, in the 20th century. In 1924, post-World War I, right? So this is like we're in the middle of kind of the, the end of the first Red Scare, this fear of communism, this fear of upheaval, this sort of transition between sort of the older era where people were living on farms to people living on cities. There was a lot of uneasiness in the nation. And so there was this fear that all these immigrants that are pouring into the United States post-World War I are gonna cause trouble. They're socialists, they're anarchists, they're here to, to bring trouble. And so in, in 1924, Congress passes another act which sets up quotas for how many people can come in. Now if you're coming in from, like if you're from Britain or from Germany, I'm sorry, I feel as if excluding all these people over here. If you're coming from Britain or Germany or any one of those places, you're totally welcome. The door's open to you, come on in, you know, the welcome wagon is out for you. But if you're coming from anywhere besides basically Western Europe, not so much, you're not welcome. So people that for, so uh, the quotas set up specifically how many people can come in and they're never really met. Even in the 1930s when uh, groups of Jews were leaving Europe trying to get to the United States and you could have brought more people in, they were not allowed in. And that is gonna, that's going to take in, continue up until the 1960s. And in 1965 under the administration of Lyndon Johnson, uh, the quota system is gone, it's taken out and it opens up the door for a huge influx of migrants coming in, particularly people coming from Southeast Asia uh, than ever before. Now, if you notice that there are a couple things on there about family unification and, and wanting people that have, good, that have good certain occupational skills that could be of benefit to the country, that was also part of the, of the legislation as well. So just to kind of give you some, some statistics here and then I'll, I'll kind of wrap this up. If you're seeing here, between 31 and 65, only five million immigrants coming in. After the uh, 1965 Immigration Act is passed, the quotas are lifted, four and a half million in the 70s, seven and almost seven and a half million in the 80s, and by the 1990s, 9.1 million. And you're seeing a huge, now a, a greater increase of immigrants 
coming in from places like Latin America and Asia, and fewer of them coming from, from, Western, from, West, from Europe. In the 80s, those of you who are of Polish descent, you'll know that a, a big group of, of immigrants came in from Poland to the US in the 80s and the early 90s in the context of the end of the Cold War. But for the most part, the immigrants that are coming in are coming from other places. And it's changing the face of the nation. And so we're kind of fleshing all those ideas out here now, right? You know, uh, this, of where people are coming from, what, that, what is that going to mean for voting patterns? Um, how is that going to affect uh, the politics of the nation moving forward? And it already is. So I'll, I think I'll, I think that's my last one, right? Yeah. So you want me, you want me to move this yeah, up here? That's Kevin, is that, that's okay. So I'll stop here and let my colleague take over and we'll, uh, we'll go from there. Any questions so far? Yes, sir. Okay. Here, let me bring the microphone over to you. I tried to find out what was happening regarding immigration because I know some people who came from Portugal via Japan and uh, Macau and all the way around to San Francisco. It seems to me, very superficially, that it would have been easier to go straight across the Atlantic. But there, was, there may have been a problem with China, Japan, and the United States, and Portugal. Was there? When was this? When are you talking about? What, what era? Uh, right around 1920. They're coming from Portugal, going to Japan, and then coming here? Hmm. Yeah. I'm drawing a blank myself. I, have to, I, have to, I can maybe look, look into that for you if you want. Maybe we could talk afterwards, and I'll see if I can find out for you. But I'm, nothing is coming to my mind right now. Let me think about it a little bit. But they're going from Portugal to Japan and then coming to the United States on the West Coast. OK, that's interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Right, but so they're so so they were already settled there. Oh, there you go. So they're leaving from Macau. Coming. Thank, thank you very much, Bill. Leaving from Macau, coming to <laughs> coming to the West Coast. There. Does that make sense? Okay. <laughs> right. Thank you, though. Thank you for the question. Any other questions right now? Okay. Hello, everyone. Um, I just wanted to touch on a couple of topics first uh, and then open it up again. Uh, perhaps uh, leave it up to you guys to decide the final topics. But I, as you may have already read a few selected quotes that you may have been exposed to in the media or heard discussed, uh, th these are just two selected quotes from candidate Donald Trump. Uh, as you may be aware, there's, uh, there were 17 Republican candidates We've had a couple drop out, but we're still at about 15. And I was just, I, I thought it might be important to put a little context into these comments and try to understand maybe the underlying motivation. I, uh, I guess I can't speak to Donald Trump's exact motivation because uh, I think only Donald knows what uh, he, he's, he's really intending or what his strategy is. But what I was pointing to with these final couple bullet points was to highlight that when you look at elections, when you look at the nomination election, we have primaries and caucuses. In the early states, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada, at least back in 2012, voter turnout is very low, and this is historically true for primaries and caucuses. So in 2012, 10% of registered voters actually voted in the first 25 states that ultimately selected Mitt Romney. In, in these early states especially, you see demographics, especially in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, 99 or 98% white Caucasian voters, disproportionately 
uh, Christian evangelical voters, disproportionately uh, male. So it's, it's kind of a different group of, of voters. And if you know about Republican uh, demographics that are more likely to support the uh, Republican candidates, these are some of their, th th these are some of their most important uh, supporters. And so in part, I think, if you understand the rhetoric of, of Donald Trump, I think he's trying to distinguish himself perhaps from other candidates and also the older, wider males in these early voting states are more likely to have views that are opposed to illegal immigrants or maybe that would be more likely to have stronger views on border security. I, I think I can transition to one of the Actually, yeah, could you go to the next slide? So this is data from the Pew organization from this past summer. I just selected two uh, questions. Uh, the one on the right uh, is signaling whether there should be a way for current illegal immigrants, undocumented immigrants, to stay in the United States. A disproportionate number of Americans, 72%, do believe they should have a path to stay legally. But when you look at the breakdown between Democrats and Republicans, you see a pretty stark divide. So again, going back to understand these early elections, many of the early voters in those first few states um, are, are likely to be uh, opposed to this view that there should be a, a legal way to stay. And on that left-hand side, you can see this partisan split even more, um, where in this case, the question is, which comes closer to your view? Are immigrants a burden by taking jobs, housing, health care? And then on the right side, strengthening the country through hard work and talents. Republicans, 63%, believe that it's more of the burden taking jobs and so forth. Whereas Democrats, it's nearly the identical number that believe that strengthen the country and hard work. So again, that rhetoric, and I think in part this can even go to some of the rhetoric you've heard more recently from Ben Carson dealing with Islam and the Constitution. You're really speaking to your base of voters the early elections. So maybe we'll come back to this slide later on if there's time. Um, Mary, could you switch to the next one? And the only other topic I wanted to at least introduce uh, before I turn it over to Darren is what I was trying to People who know me know me. I'm a, a little bit more of a pessimist. And I guess I was trying to think of, and for this uh, talk today, what are the prospects of actually having comprehensive immigration reform? I mean, we have approximately 11 million undocumented immigrants in the United States. Uh, just last week, we had Jose Angel, the author of Illegal, come and speak to us. And I was thinking about through, through his eyes and the other undocumented immigrants, or on the flip side, for those people like Donald Trump who believe that, uh, I, I guess ultimately, that there should be deportation of all undocumented immigrants. The prospects of having comprehensive immigration reform or uh, mass deportation I see is very unlikely. I gave a couple of examples of recent attempts. There's been so many attempts in the last 10 to 15 years the most two prominent ones in 2007, and then most recently in 2013 where the Senate actually did pass a reform bill. But if you notice in that first bullet point, really what I'm saying, and I know my students are here today, and they're probably tired of me talking about the principles of the Constitution, but the framers created a very difficult system, a, a system that ma would make it very difficult to achieve 
comprehensive change on really any issue. Um, but with separation of powers, checks and balances, um, a bicameral legislature, it makes it very difficult to achieve change. As just that most recent example where the Senate bill passed uh, pretty overwhelmingly in the Senate as far as how Senate bills traditionally go, it didn't even get proposed in the House of Representatives. Uh, so it's a very difficult process to have immigration reform. Um, as you may have heard though, uh, most recently President Obama uh, in 2014 issued an executive order that would uh, essentially have discretion over deportation of undocumented immigrants. Uh, there was approximately four to five million people who this could potentially impact um, to delay any deportation, especially for, for those who may ha be parents of U.S. citizens who are children. But 26 states have sued the Obama administration to, and ultimately the current status of the situation we have, um, it's being held up in the, f in the federal court. There's a possibility for an appeal. Um, you know, so right now this is basically a status quo situation with the executive order. In my class today we were uh, scheduled to talk about interest groups so I, I just wanted to bring them back in for just a moment of why did we have the system to begin with? Uh, the framers, James Madison, if you read Federalist Number 10, Federalist Number 51, they were very concerned with factions. Factions are what we would call today interest groups. And I just wanted to highlight a few to try to understand this issue of immigration and immigration reform. There are so many different groups. I think in 2012, according to Open uh, Secrets, there's 330 different registered interest groups dealing with immigration reform. On the right end of the spectrum, you have cultural conservatives, kind of the nationalists. Maybe you would put Donald Trump on that end. Uh, more security focused, even favoring deportation, building walls, or in the case of Trump, great, great walls. Um, on that same end of the spectrum, you have business groups. Although business groups are divided, you have high-tech industry, agricultural, construction, trade groups who have varying levels of support for some elements of reform. And maybe just when I'm saying that reform, what does that even mean? I think it means different things to different people. To that first group, it means better enforcement of the current laws that we have, building walls, potentially deportation. To some of the business groups, it may be allowing more workers or um, visas for groups um, in, in their specific industries. Labor and union groups, I think, uh, if I were to back up for just a moment, I think Democrats love that immigration is a constant election issue. They see it as a wedge issue within the Republican Party to kind of divide those cultural conservatives from some of the business uh, conservatives. But to be fair to, to, to Democrats, they too have been divided on this. Most recently in 2007, we had Republican President Bush who really had a domestic agenda in part to have immigration reform. And in this case, it died, the, the reform bill died in the Senate in part because, yes, you had a divide between uh, conservatives and liberals, but even within the liberal party, you had labor unions, some of which were opposed to guest worker provisions, uh, others were supported. And then, of course, you've got human rights, immigrant activist groups, uh, and, and in no way is this exclusive of all the potential interest groups, but it just, my point here is to show that you have so many different groups competing for their specific policy interests, that it's very difficult to have change in any way at the national level, in a very comprehensive way to have change. Is it possible to open up that federal again?
So in many ways, that was a pessimistic outlook for any sort of immigration reform at the national level. But Madison also left us with another component in this Madisonian model, and that is federalism. And this is my optimistic view of the future, is that we'll continue to see changes on immigration, but it won't be necessarily at the national level, it'll be at the state level. And it, just scroll down for the first part of this. What I was trying to show is we have approximately 12 states where unauthorized immigrants can get driver's license, Illinois being one of them. And a brief map, you can kind of see the southwest, parts of the uh, northeast as well. If you scroll down to the next item, you have uh, where there's tuition benefits. Again, Illinois is one of those states. So really, we have a patchwork system uh, in some states that I guess are making the life of undocumented immigrants a little bit easier and transitioning them into um, being able to be more ingrained citizens in our society. And then on the other end of the spectrum, the final, and this is from the New York Times. Could you scroll down one more time for me, Mary? Where the E-Verify system in basically making it, um, uh, uh, scroll down one more, I think it is. Yeah, with yeah, actually there's a lot of data in here and I, maybe if I have more time at the end, I'll come back to it. But this is basically work permits and, and states that are cracking down um, on workers and uh, using the E-Verify system is also within this. So the point here is that some states are making life easier, other states are making it harder, and maybe uh, going forward, that's the direction that we'll see. Similar to things, marijuana policy, sometimes we see states that actually have policies that contradict with national policies. And so that's kind of, if I were to predict, that's the future, is that we'll see continued, I guess, differences at the state and local level. And I'd be happy to talk maybe more about demographics and how the, you know, immigration could be an issue for the 2016 election. But I don't want to take up any more time for now, so I'll pass it over to Professor Trek. Thank you, Kevin. And good morning, everyone. Uh, it, it's a pretty good week, I think, uh, to be a Catholic. Um, to think back perhaps maybe 160 years ago, the thought of having a pope in our country would be unthinkable. I know that the pope, uh, popes in the past have been to uh, the United States, but uh, being of somebody who has relatives who were born in Poland and born in Germany, and I also have some Irish background as well, uh, the thought of having a movement in the United States that would have said that Eastern European people could not live in this country because of the fear that they would uh, get their ideas from the Pope and that the Pope would circumvent anything that the President had to say is pretty unthinkable. Uh, we had a movement in the United States which was called the Know Nothing Movement, a political party called the Know Nothing Party, which basically told the Protestant or even Western European people of the United States that all Eastern Europeans or those of Catholic backgrounds should not be able to come into the United States. Uh, the fear that Pope Pius IX would be the leader of this country was very, uh, let's say it was, it was an erratic thought, but it was a prevalent thought amongst people who believed in this Know Nothing movement. 
the Know Nothing movement did exist mostly in the Northeast. And uh, in 1856, ran a candidate for president who actually won a state in the state of Maryland, which interestingly enough was a state that was created in part by Catholics uh, you know, during the, the before the period of the American Revolution. Uh, I bring that up to you because populism in the United States has never died out. The Know Nothing movement is a form of populism. Populism, to simplify it, is basically telling people that there's an us versus them mentality. That the reason why you don't have is because somebody else has it all. And you pit yourself against another group to kind of better your standing and to make your argument more vocal or to make it louder. What we see in the Know Nothing movement of the 1850s and sort of the early 1860s before the Republican Party was formed, before the Civil War, you do see that populism today. It plays out on the left in the form of economic populism, where the banks and the corporations run everything, versus the populism on the right, where certain candidates come out and say that, well, you don't have because another group has more than you and is taking away what is rightfully yours. Professor Navratil and I spoke about it before the, uh, this session began. When you have 17 candidates running for president on the Republican side and 16 of them are talking about lowering taxes, you have to somehow create a wedge and push yourself out as a front runner by speaking about something that no one else is speaking about. Whether Donald Trump believes in what he believes in or what he has been saying is one side of the issue, but there is a segment of the population who will gravitate towards a candidate who is saying something differently than other candidates. That's how our history in the United States has been. The Know Nothing Party was a wedge. The Populist Party of the 1890s, an economic agricultural party, was a wedge. The George Wallace movement of the American Independent, which was solely based on race in the 1960s, was a wedge. Ross Perot in the 1990s, a sort of a right-wing economic populism, was a wedge. And the immigration issue today is no different than the immigration issue of eight, the 1850s. There is a segment of the population who believes that immigration should be managed differently than another segment of the population. Younger people between the ages of 18 to 29 typically support the idea of allowing illegal immigrants to stay in the United States and apply for citizenship. Now I'm going to quote three different polls for you. Since Professor Navratil brought it up that the three states that start off the primary season, Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina are the most important states in order to get a nomination either on the Democratic or Republican side. And the following polls were taken by CBS YouGov, YouGov, Y-O-U-G-O-V. And this uh, was conducted in the early part of September. In the state of Iowa, and I'll give you three categories, there is allowed to stay and apply for citizenship. Category two is required to leave. And category three is stay, allowing illegals to stay, but not giving them citizenship. In the state of Iowa, 45% say you should stay and apply for citizenship. 47% say you should be requ required to leave. 8% say stay but not get any citizenship. 
In the state of New Hampshire, it's 46 allowed to stay, 44 required to leave, and 9% stay but not allowed to be a citizen. In South Carolina, it's pretty similar to New Hampshire, 47% allowed to stay and apply for citizenship, 41 required to leave, and 8% to stay but not to give that person citizenship. Roughly about 1,000 people were asked those questions, both Democrats and Republicans combined. But as I mentioned before, if you were to look at it solely on age, younger people between the ages of 18 to 29 support the idea of allowing people to stay and apply for citizenship. All other demographics in all three states favor the idea for illegal immigrants to leave. Regardless if it's a Republican or a Democrat who is uh, answering this question, you do see that Democrats do, in some cases, favor the idea of having illegal immigrants to leave the country. The idea of populism isn't necessarily a Republican idea or a Democratic idea, but if you're trying to separate yourself between candidates either on the Democratic or Republican side, creating a wedge issue such as illegal immigration does work. It may only work in the short term, in trying to get a primary nomination because after all, as Professor Navratil said, the demographics and primaries are much different than the general. Most of you will not vote in the Illinois primary, but you might vote in the general election. By the time the general election comes around, illegal immigration might not even be discussed. Uh, or you might hear both candidates on the Democratic and Republican side sound exactly the same, where you can't tell the difference between the two and therefore you're left with the issues that you were kind of ignoring from the start. The issues of lowering taxes, bettering the economy, and creating a safer foreign policy that is not related to illegal immigration. So as I said before, these issues that we see today in regards to immigration, they haven't disappeared. We've been talking about it for 160 years. It just depends on how far you want that wedge issue to carry over into our elections. Right. So if you have any questions, I'll be happy to answer them. I have two questions, but I think they're related. Um, do you have any data on how Hispanics who are citizens or uh, permanent residents mm -hmm. feel about uh, the issues that you raised today? I don't personally have them. I can only speak anecdotally that you do hear that Hispanics who do live in the country who are here legally in some cases do support the idea of having people go through a process to become immigrants and then there are those who, who don't support it. My other question is about Donald Trump. And I don't want to get derailed into the quality of his statements or his candidacy. But I'm just wondering on the basis of what I have seen in the media whether he is touching a nerve that is not really expressed in this country which is really anti-immigration, anti-Hispanics, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. I think part, part of it is, is anti-immigration. I think the biggest part is an anti-establishment uh, where you have 14 candidates, I'd say maybe 11 candidates on the Republican side who have government experience and three who don't. If you look at the, the latest polls on the Republican side nationally, the top three candidates 
have never been elected to any office before. And if you took those um, percentages and combined them, they would make up half of, more than half of the, uh, the, uh, the respondents who were polled. I don't know if, uh, I don't know if, if a populist candidate in general actually believes in the populism that they talk about. And, I, and I, I believe that not only in the United States, but also in European politics, too. I, uh, populism is attractive. It's provocative. It's sexy. It throws it out in front of your face. It makes you argue. It makes you think. But you know what? When, when you put the pen to paper, can it actually work? And I don't think populism has ever been elected nationally in this country. Because of, uh, because of the fact that when you put it to work, it won't work. It's highly emotional, and it, and it strays away from the rational. Question uh, back here. I was, ju I was just going to say, uh, to add to that, I, I, you know, if you take Darren's polls and the polls that I was referring to together, the primary voters, I mean, if, ha if, if the Iowa and New Hampshire voters are split on this topic, one way of looking at it with the poll that I showed, the Democrats are more likely to favor a path to citizenship, whereas Republicans are not. And the group of voters in Iowa, you know, many of them aren't going to show up, but the ones who do are more likely to hold the, the view that is against the uh, pathway to citizenship. Mm -hmm. So it, and this is free advertising. I mean, uh, I think uh, Trump said he'd like to spend, a he would spend upwards of $100 million, but he doesn't have to when he, can generate this kind of uh, media attention with these kind of comments. You know, I do think if you're actually getting at the prospects of, of immigration reform, this rhetoric only complicates the matters. If it does, you know, if it isn't successful in firing up the base, this same Republican base or group of voters who may be opposed to a pathway to citizenship are only going to be stronger in their opposition of any future reform. Uh, but it can be uh, successful of separating yourself from candidates in the short term. Yeah. And one other, one other thing. Uh, if you were to take, and I just heard it this morning, if you were to take every single time you saw Donald Trump on television today, since the time he announced that he was running for president, and you were to put a dollar sign on that, mm -hmm. he is getting $60 million of free advertising. Mm -hmm. There is no need for him to put out a television commercial in any sense. As long as people keep filming him, he gets free advertising. No other candidate can get 60 million. Okay, I think even Ted Cruz jokingly on uh, Stephen Colbert's show yesterday said, I heard you're having Donald Trump on television tomorrow or whatever, and Colbert said, do you want me to ask a question of him? And he said, yes, could he lend me a billion dollars? <laughs> because that will be the only way that you can compete with him. Do you have any information on the polls of the Syrian uh, refugees that are supposed to be coming to the United States? Mary? Polls regarding are people in favor of it or people, is that what you're asking, or just polls regarding what specifically about the Syrian refugees, whether or not they should be allowed to come in or? Whether or not they should be allowed to come in. I don't have specific data on, on, on the public opinion polls regarding people wanting to come in, but I know that definitely we are, we've been lagging behind our our counterparts in Europe for quite a while. We could have been letting more people in all this time and we have not been. Um, 
And so that I, I definitely can, can speak to that. And that's actually, thank you for bringing that up because I, I wanted to just talk a little briefly about, for those of you that are following kind of the, the migrant crisis in, in Europe, and um, I don't mean to shift topics from Donald Trump because I'm sure he'll come back up again because he seems to be a very popular figure these days. Um, but uh, if you've been following that, you're seeing that European countries are opening up their, some European countries are opening up their borders to allow migrants coming in, not only from Syria, but from other parts of the Middle East and from North Africa as well. And uh, I think that it, it, it speaks to an interesting, you're gonna see a, a, a tremendous shift uh, taking place in Europe. Um, some countries like Hungary are vastly opposed to letting them in. Other countries like Germany, under tremendous pressure from uh, Angela Merkel, who's the chancellor of Germany, is fa facing tremendous pressure from within her own party about whether or not Germany should be opening up its borders, but they are for right now. How that's going to change the face of Europe. And one of the things I always talk about with my students is the difference between, I would argue that in the United States, we seem to have more room here, right? You know, you could be living in, if, if an immigrant comes over here to the US and they settle in New York, but they don't like it in New York. They can go to Arizona, they can go to Ohio, they can go to Kentucky, they can go elsewhere. There's more real estate available. Whereas on a continent like Europe, um, it's a little bit harder. They don't have as much real estate. Countries are much older, they're much more established, they were, they were much more homogenous. Whereas we seem to be sort of this, if you compare it sort of like this, this beach where we kind of absorb a wave of immigrants. Der Professor Schreck spoke earlier about Irish immigration and, and the Germans and groups that, that faced opposition when they came in and we just kind of seem to be absorbing them each time. Um, there does seem to be room for, for some more Syrian immigrants coming in, we are going to see more coming in as well. Um, now, how that's going to end up changing politics in Europe, that's a whole other story, because you're seeing that happening all over the place. Far-right governments in, in, in Greece are, are, are doing very well, and Austria are doing well, and Denmark are doing well. Um, and so I, I think, you know, I, I can open up for my colleagues to speak on that too, but I think it's another or interesting even, point. Or even the idea of having a poll on an issue that's pretty recent, it's very difficult to find recent numbers. And, and I, the poll numbers that I gave you about immigration, I had difficulty finding them, and the, the most recent one I could find was three weeks ago. Mm -hmm. So when, when they're putting out poll questions, and, and you might be polled over the phone, you'll know when you're getting a call, it comes up as um, unidentified caller. It's the one you don't answer and they don't leave a message, that's usually at around election time, there's a, a poll company that will call. And they'll ask you a series of questions, but over time, if they see that uh, certain questions are not getting any, uh, you know, any traction, then they're not gonna ask that question anymore. So the idea of asking a question right now about Syrian refugees, I don't think it gets enough, in, uh, gets enough traction in the news media to even ask people about it. And once it gets traction, maybe at that point, they'll st the, uh, the poll companies and the news media will start asking questions of the public about it. Um, in recently, a bunch of uh, Europe countries have been saying that they, uh, well, they're giving a lot of the United States a lot of flack because uh, we're only supposed to take in 10,000 Syrian refugees while everyone else is taking in the millions. Do you think that's right? Are we getting enough flack for that, or do you think maybe the UN should step in? Are we? Are we? Is the U.S. not, not taking on its its share its 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 fair amount of, of of refugees that it could take in? Is that basically what you're asking? Yeah, recently. Is it correct to be criticizing the United States for not taking on more? Mm -hmm. 
and people are, uh, I think it was Germany that says they want to go to the UN and basically make the United States take in more, as well as like Hungary, uh, Hungary and uh, I forget what the other country was. Right. They've been discussing that on the, within the EU, they've been discussing. I'm not sure about the UN in particular, because I don't know how well that would work out since the US is on the Security Council. But in terms of within the EU, I know that's been, uh, it's been discussed quite a bit. The US can absorb more. I would argue that it can. There's, there's room enough here for more people. And the people that are, are coming over are people who are hungry for newer opportunity and, and looking, to, looking to better themselves. You know, one of the, um, one of the things that, uh, quotes that I got from, from the book that I thought was really interesting that gave me pause for reflection is um, Jose Angel talks about, he said, my birth predetermined my future, being born in Mexico, I, that he was disadvantaged, and that I inherited resignation, resentment, mistrust, and social misery. And that, that brings up a whole other, so by virtue of the fact of being born with a Syrian passport and you're living in a country that's dealing with civil war, um, is it, oh well, just deal with it? Or does that put a greater burden on countries like the US and others than to step in to try to resolve the conflict at home so that you don't have so many refugees leaving and coming to other countries? Because that's the other basic alternative. Uh, we're trying to mediate, a mediate the crisis and we're not seeing enough uh, political support for such a such an uh, uh, for the US to, to intervene so if that's not going to happen that it seems like maybe the, the best solution right now is to try to to allow some of those refugees to come in I was trying to pull up data on that to answer your question um, it, I pulled up the link now twice and it hasn't worked I, I before I give or maybe I won't give my own personal opinions um, uh, this one should work there's, this, is, this is an article from the New York Times titled um, The Coming Migra Migration Juggernaut is Heading for Europe. There's a couple of different ways to respond to that. I think some people would say, you know, currently the United States, as far as our population of share of uh, born outside the country. No, no, no. Some would say the United States is already leading as far as the percentage of our population that is foreign-born. And if anything, in our first part of our discussion, we've established it's very hard to get Americans to agree on what to do with the current number of citizens who are undocumented. Uh, others would also add that we've had migrations, particularly from Central America, Latin America, and so the United States is doing their part to help with that migration crisis, some of which people are leaving from cartel and drug violence. Um, now, if I could just add maybe my own personal view, I, I do think that um, if you look at the scale of this migration crisis, especially coming from countries that the United States either has been involved militarily or perhaps some people would say should be involved, whether it be Syria, to take on uh, 1,500 refugees when other countries are taking on so many, I, I do think that there is perhaps a more of a responsibility to take on more. There's complications. I mean, we have a House of Representative down in Texas. I forget his name, but last uh, last spring I remember, you know, there was there was criticism over even taking the 1,500 that we've taken to that point um, because of concerns of ISIS, national security. And so a vetting of, of who the, the, the refugees are. After 9-11, it's a complicated process. Uh, the United States currently takes in approximately 70,000 refugees a year. 
The idea, uh, the new idea proposed is to take on 100,000. Still very, very small uh, number, but even that number is contested. You know, if, if that political system is very difficult to get American members of Congress to agree. Yeah, I had a question. Hi, Mary. Um, and you touched on it briefly, uh, regards to national security. I don't know if we could go there or not, or if you're strictly talking about uh, the more general topic. But um, there was something about a week ago I read in the news, and it was just real micro, where uh, nationally the uh, FBI um, was works in the assistant uh, counterterrorism unit, basically pointed out that unfortunately Syria is what they label a failed state. Meaning most countries you can do some sort of a background check or, you know, where were you born or there's some record. Because Syria has basically been labeled by our FBI officials a failed state, that that's going to be a real challenge. That's a practical challenge because you have things like ISIS. Um, so, I mean, that's, we certainly have enough room and I think very open-minded, welcoming people, but how do you comport that uh, with that reality? We've talked well, about I this mean before. The, yeah, the, per the percentage of people who are currently af affiliated with ISIL, um, as far as the millions of refugees, uh, in the vetting process that we have, I think you can do a fairly decent job of, of being able to try to prevent in any way that you possibly can against those who may wish the United States harm. Is it going to be perfect? Probably not. I think if you were to look statistically at some of the um, violence that we've had internally or some of the um, terrorist-related events in the United States, I think you'd see that demographically they're not um, – white supremacist groups are ha or have been more likely to have – or anti-government groups have been – actually have more examples of violence domestically than we've had of, of terrorism, at least in the last 10 years. So there I, I think that, that partially that concern is a little bit misplaced. And I think if we're, fo I personally, I think if we're focusing so much on who we're keeping out, we're forgetting about the people that we could be letting in who could possibly be offering great potential to this country. I would argue that the vast majority of people who want to come here are coming simply because most people that end up as refugees don't want to be refugees. No one wants to pack up and leave their house in the middle of the night or have their, their lose children or lose a spouse or whatever and then have to be on the go. And the, the vast majority of those people who are, are willing to take the, the risk to try to leave, it's because things are so bad at home that they, they're just, they're, the, the risk ratio is they have to go. They can't stay. It's too bad. It's too difficult. It's too dangerous. So I, I know, I understand, I mean, George, we've talked about it before, and I, I do, that is a concern that I think we all have, but I, I think we also have to look at it, I would argue, that no matter what we do to try to make ourselves feel safe, if somebody wants to do your country harm, they're going to find a way to do it. No matter how many locks you put on the doors, no matter how many fences you put up, no matter how many barriers you put up, they're going to do it. So I, I, to me, it seems like the greater good for, for the, the health of this nation is to, and again, this is my personal opinion, to make it a more welcoming place and more desirable place for people to settle. Because one of the things I think that we have to think about overall in the world is the declining birth rate. Uh, Western European states are, are basically their, their birth rates on the decline. And you want to have a healthy, robust, younger generation that can be able to take care of in this country, this, this, by was it 2050, one in four people are going to be over the age of 65. 
So that's something else I think we have to think about too. And the more immigration that we, I think, have the country open to, the more robust population there is, workers that are providing for social security, if it's, again, if they're allowed to have a, a path to, to legalization, um, and also to, to be able to provide for, for the elderly too. So I think that, as a, again, looking as a, as a cost-benefit ratio, I, th I think it's still in our favor to allow them. Allow them. Question back there. Hi, um, I just want to like hold a quick poll for the room, just have like a general perspective as to how everyone's train of thought is towards immigration. Uh, show of hands of everyone who feels that um, there are more immigrants today than there was back in 19 in the 1980s um, during the time Reagan signed the Amnesty Act. Show of hands if you feel like there are more illegal immigrants today trying to get papers compared to then. Do you feel like there's more or less? Show of hands if you th feel like there are more. You would think more? Okay. Show of hands if you think there are less. Okay. I saw a lot of people not vote, but here are the facts. I mean, that feels comfortable, um, yeah. Obama, during his administration, allowed 120,000 illegal immigrants to obtain documents to become American citizens. 1986, when the Amnesty Act was signed by Ronald Reagan, 200,000 illegal immigrants became US citizens. So there's more control. I feel like the idea of misconception is being worked in today's world. Media has a way of expressing their views of how they want the general public to see things. Basically what I'm trying to say is separate fact from fiction because a lot of people in the states like to believe that illegal immigration is becoming a huge problem when compared to actual facts from things that have happened in the past, it is not. So that's just the point that I wanted to get across. And to kind of piggyback off what you were saying, that the United States has a lot of rich opportunity and an abundance to be able to kind of provide a better, better future for all these refugees, immigra immigrants, and everyone else who wants to seek that opportunity, that is true. There's a lot of land and there's a lot of awesome opportunity for anyone to pursue and, and, and capitalize on. Um, and that's basically it. That's all I want to say. Thank you. <laughs> you know, there's uh, Professor Navratil brought up the fact that at times he gets pessimistic about certain issues. And for students of, of mine, I think they know that I'm pretty cynical about things myself. When you would watch, let's say, in the news and you would see uh, stories about Chicago gun violence, for instance, and you see the same news story day after day after day and month after month and year after year and you say to yourself, when is the issue ever going to be solved? And you realize maybe it's not going to get solved. Or you see things about tax reform or social security reform or education reform and you don't see the test scores getting higher. You don't see more money getting to the social security coffers. You don't see your taxes going down but we still have arguments about it. The same holds true with illegal immigration. I'm sure a year from now, it'll be election season, full throttle. 
we would be about a month and uh, a couple of weeks away from the general election. And I still believe we would have the same conversation then that we're having right now. What are the solutions? Uh, what are the steps that are going to be taken? And my students know, based on the discussions that I've had with them in the past and this current semester, is this. Sometimes I think the Democrats and the Republicans just like to argue <laughs> because then they can show that they have a position. And if they have a position, they can run on it come election time. And if, the po if their position were ever to be solved, then they as a candidate would have to find another position on another issue. So it's best to not fix the car. It's best to argue that the car needs to be fixed. And I have an idea of how it can be fixed. <laughs> no, you have an idea that can be, you, know, you have an idea. No, I have a better idea. And yet the car still sits in the garage and it's not being fixed. So when we talk about illegal immigration right now, I still think we're going to have the same conversation because I don't think it's either going to be a Bernie Sanders or a Donald Trump as the nominees of the party. I think it's going to be two mainstream candidates, whoever they are, they will be as most mainstream as you can find. And the idea of having comprehensive immigration reform will only be a discussion and talking point and it will never be solved. I think it's kind of a universal truth of, of politics, too, in general, that, that it's easier to, yeah. to disagree than it is to actually come up with solutions, because once you come up with the solutions, then you have to actually maybe focus on, on other problems. just want to add one thing uh, with regard in, in response to the gentleman's point back there. Um, you know, when I, I give, offer my own personal opinion, I, I, I often tell my students, you're probably going to be able to pick up on how I think about something with the way that I frame it anyway. So I want to just offer uh, an anecdote here. Um, as the daughter of, of, of Greek immigrants, um, I remember years ago, being younger and much more naive, saying to my mother, you know, God, you know, I don't think it's right that people come over here illegally. They should come the proper way. They should apply for citizenship and go through the path like everybody else does. And I went on and on and on and on and on and on. And my mom just sat there listening to me. And I stopped. And she said, well, by the way, your grandfather was an illegal immigrant, so I just hope you kind of keep that in mind when you think about your own position on this issue. And I was like, what are you talking about? Well, my, my grandfather left Greece uh, in the 19-teens and was working on like the Greek merchant marine and made his way over and ended up living in, in South America for a couple of years during World War I in Argentina when there was a blockade and ships could not leave. And he got back on the ship afterwards and made his way up to New Orleans and decided when he got to New Orleans, he just didn't like being in the merchant marine anymore. So he jumped ship. And I never, I always knew that he jumped ship. I never quite realized though what that meant. It meant that he jumped ship and he came into New Orleans illegally. He had no papers and just made his way up the Mississippi River and came up to Chicago and, and started working. And he worked as a, a fruit peddler, doing the jobs that the Italians used to do before the Greeks, and then he got, got into the ice cream and candy business after the Italians vacated those jobs. And he opened up an ice cream and candy business in 1931, and it's still open today. Now, we don't, our family doesn't own it anymore, but it's still open. My point is, he got amnesty post-World War II when President Truman issued it and became a legal citizen. So I guess when I, when I, talk about my own personal opinions on immigration, I always kind of have him in mind, thinking that, you know, again, who are we also keeping out when we're excluding people from the country? People who perhaps have a great deal to offer to the nation uh, if we just gave them a chance maybe to be here, so. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I just have a question about, um, you mentioned that this issue is also used as a wedge on the left. And uh, my class were studying the food industry from the worker's perspective. Mm -hmm. And so if the panel could just talk about how immigration and um, 
how it relates to labor and the, the divisiveness on the left. I, I was just referring to in 2007, there was a, a provision in the Senate bill to have a guest worker program. And you had the AFL-CIO was opposed to the guest worker program, and you had the Service Employees International Union um, and their, and their uh, members uh, that actually supported it. And as just one example of divides within unions, I mean, even, you know, uh, some of the people on the far left, maybe uh, human rights activist groups who would have, uh, it, you know, when I was trying to say what reform means, I think it's in the eye of the beholder, and some of the groups on the left would like a much more quicker version to uh, citizenship, uh, you know, maybe expanding the number of legal pathways. I mean, right now it's something that's never brought up, but we do a, a limit based on country, and but so. Kevin, could you, so, you may not know this, I know you don't represent the Service Employees Union or AFL-CIO. <laughs> you don't know what they're thinking, but maybe try to offer why they, why a union might be in support of guest worker or why they may be against it. Like, I think I could take some guesses, but. Go ahead, start. I, I made you, you know, I put the experts up there. Well, so I would guess that you have unions that are fighting for their members to raise wages. Mm -hmm. So they organize contracts, and any workers who are outside of their organization that will work for less put pressure on their contracts to go down. So therefore, if I'm a union, I may not like um, undocumented folks coming in and working because that pushes wages down in the market. However, if I'm a, a, a union that's trying to grow and I have all these people coming in doing work, I see them as potential members. So why don't I take them and organize them, make them legal through a guest worker program, and then make them my members to make my union stronger? And I and I don't. You would have to so go out and do research. Go to the library right. and do s and do some research <laughs> and find out. Idea. But I would guess that that is part of the wedge on the left, and that those are some of the issues, maybe not all, that would separate labor in, right. in with immigration. And I believe if you go further to the left, if you go left of liberal, you would find many socialists or even those who call themselves democratic socialists who would probably have more of an honest take on reforming immigration, where they would be in favor of allowing, as I mentioned, allowing people to stay and, and give a path to citizenship or allowing, to, to allowing them to apply for citizenship. I also come from the perspective of that if a union were to support something like uh, immigration reform, union membership means more members, which means that there's a potential for more votes, and the Democratic Party would be in favor of something like that. The Republican Party would not be in favor of something where if they're looking at votes as their only baseline, where they would be in favor of a policy where they could possibly lose votes mm -hmm. or never win an election nationally. Right. So I think what it comes down to it is what can either party gain from this? Can they get elected from it or can they not get elected by it? The, just a final point on that uh, to add to, to the two previous comments. The Service Employees International Union represents the hotel restaurant workers and so, and again, some of them are already undocumented, and so they have friends, family members, and so forth. I think it's also in, in support of, of them. So they're, absolutely. But that's just one, that's just one, the guest worker program was one provision of the reform bill, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and, but yet that alone can be enough to prevent certain Democrats from supporting the bill, and it needed 60 um, to, to be able to end the debate within the Senate. And the, the guest worker program has historical precedent with the Bracero program. Correct. Right? 
And that was something that Cesar Chavez and the farm workers fought against, you know, just so it's the fact that it would come back up, but you can somewhat predict why unions would oppose a guest worker program for the reasons Troy stated. Yeah. I'm curious about something that was passed a while ago. Um, if it is true that the Syrian refugees only want to pass through Hungary, why is Hungary resorting to such wanton violence against them? Why not just let them go through? I think that has to do with internal Hungarian politics. And traditionally, Hungary, Hungary has been very, um, if, you, if you poll <laughs> EU states, they've always been one of the states that's been much more against immigration and has a pretty strong far-right party, too. So I think that just has to do with Hungary is pretty nationalist, too, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, it's, it's their own internal politics. I see a question up here. I'm coming. Yeah, um, now, uh, when you said earlier about, like, when you said about, like, how the difference between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, because when I, when I look at Donald Trump, it's like, obviously, yeah, he's just playing to his base. But when I look at Bernie Sanders, I looked at all of his records, and I did all my research, because there were people, like, in Vermont, okay, who voted for Bush and Cheney, but also voted for Bernie Sanders as well. So I would argue to you, like, when you said, and this is why a lot of people have kind of, like, given up and kind of, let's say, oh, they're all the same and kind of, like, lose hope and why this country is kind of, like, in a gridlock, basically, like the p in the past 10, 15, 20 years, based in the last 30 years when economics have changed due to gridlock. But I would argue that, like, if I'm, wouldn't you c at least concur that due to Bernie Sanders, like, you know, great when he gets, he can get both sides of the spectrum to kind of agree on something, wouldn't you at least concur that Bernie Sanders at least has a better shot as compared to, let's say, Donald Trump or, let's say, some of the establishment like Hillary Clinton, who tends to have more special interest, more for, like, the big banks as, as compared to Bernie Sanders, who totally represents everybody from where everybody can agree on something. I think the, the candidacy of Bernie Sanders will come down to uh, a series of states, which we call Super Tuesday, where many of those states are kind of like the more populated states that vote in the primaries. Sanders probably could win Iowa and he could win New Hampshire. Go, but when it comes to South Carolina, it's going to be an uphill battle for him. And then when you get to this the states where there's about 15 to 20 that vote on the same day, it can steamroll into one, cad one candidate's direction and, and not into Bernie Sanders' direction. Uh, the reason why Republicans vote for Bernie Sanders in Vermont is because there's a very weak Republican Party in Vermont. There are essentially three parties in Vermont. One is called the Progressive Party, the other is the Democratic Party, the other is the Republican. Uh, Vermont politics are much different than other, uh, other states in that area of the country. Uh, Vermont, for instance, elects a governor every two years. Uh, we have governors who are elected every four years. Uh, and they go to jail after that, too. But <laughs> in Vermont, you know, they're there for two years, and then they're up for re-election. Uh, the Republican Party in, in Vermont, if, if you want to at least participate, you will find Republicans who will vote for a Bernie Sanders, even though they would probably not agree with him on 90% of the issues. The reason why Bernie Sanders also gets Republican votes is for a long period of time, he had an A rating from the uh, National Rifle Association, while his Republican opponents didn't have an A rating. So you would find people who own guns who would support Bernie Sanders and ignore all of his economic policies. Basically, like when I when he was interviewed, um, like a couple weeks ago, but like you know, but his rating from the from the NRA, basically, it was basically like a D minus. Like obviously, yeah, in Vermont, he's given like an A or a B, but like when you look at like the NRA, like you know, nationally, they basically gave him a D minus, basically. So yeah, you're right because 
Yeah, and his, uh, yeah, on the guns thing, yeah, he's kind of like kind of like neutral and kind of like has agreement. But, but what I can say is, at least Vermont ha- kind of like has a good example. Is like just because you, yeah, like when you said, yeah, even though you're a weak party, but you can like fundamentally kind of agree on things. Like despite you know, we yeah, just like when he went when Bernie Sanders went to like um, um, the Jerry Falwell's college, um, Liberty University. When he when he talked to people who completely disagree with him, when he said. Yeah, even though abortion, okay, in country, you know, that's why we disagree on those social issues. But when it comes to like all the other things for morality and like all the other things, they use the morality and like use it back at them as an opportunity for them to agree on a certain thing like economics and all that stuff. Is is Bernie Sanders a more serious candidate than Donald Trump? I would argue yes, he is. However, I would agree with Professor Shrek that they would both lose in a general election in the primary for the same reasons. Because ultimately, you want you, a, a party wants to move a candidate forward who's going to win in a general election. And can Bernie Son- Sanders win in a general election? No. They're going to start labeling this a socialist, this and that, and, and he has no chance. Donald Trump, his ratings are already beginning to fall. Yeah. And, and you his, know, oh, go yeah, ahead. No, go ahead. It's okay. And, and because there's a, a lack of substance behind his issues. He throws a lot of stuff out there. It's almost like he throws, I like to do a, use a different word, but to see whatever can stick to the wall. And and just kind of see what's gonna what's gonna get him some more ratings. And I mean, and, yeah. and, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's like because I'm, you make a good point. I mean, I get because a lot of people from like like the corporate media and even like on MSNBC because yeah, they mostly like represent the establishment. Because I mean, the reason like why um yeah you, you make a point like yeah why he can't win because obviously because of the money in politics basically because obviously the people with the most money wins because these Donald Trump has an advantage because he has he can fund his own campaign and not have to go to like Sheldon Adelson or the Koch brothers to like fund and deny these things. So, but I would argue that like Bernie Sanders is a great example of like when it comes to like showing like how a true politics is supposed to be, and not sell you out to like special interests for certain things when we should be moving forward as the country, basically. You know, and I know we're running short on time in between classes, but I think what I I was going to post it up on on the screen. But if you want to find out what the candidates stand for, and there are plenty of candidates to to find out their stances on immigration, I suggest going to the website Politics One. The word politics with the number one dot com. There is a, a link at the top that says presidential candidates. You click on whatever presidential candidate you want to see. And uh, at least with the top four candidates that I found with Trump, Carly Fiorina, Bernie Sanders, and Hillary Clinton, they had prominent uh, position policies or, or policy papers on the issue of immigration. I'm sure every candidate does. So if you want to look that up, Politics one the number one dot com. Great. Uh, maybe final thoughts going back to immigration before we wrap up. Anything? Uh, we have a few minutes, a couple minutes. Just like four uh, minutes. I, either one of those candidates, I, I'm, I'm trying to envision what it would look like to have an immigration reform on their watch. Uh, and, and it would be difficult even if either of those did emerge from the general election. Uh, I just I think it'll be interesting after the primary and caucuses to kind of see how the general election dynamics work out with the demographics. I think we're seeing uh, the traditional base of the Republican Party is uh, declining as far as white, older uh, voters, uneducate, uh, lower education, and so we're seeing that there are more Hispanic Latino voters. I think especially in states like Nevada, Florida. New Mexico, Colorado, even Iowa, that that will play a role in the 2016 general election. And um, there's potentially millions of undocumented, or I'm sorry, of residents in the United States who have the potential to be naturalized. They just need to take the 
naturalization exam and pay the 600 and I think it's $80. That will be interesting. There's a lot of movements um, to try to increase the number of, of uh, residents who apply for citizenship. And then voter turnout. Voter turnout amongst Latino Hispanic groups was actually 48% in 2012, which is very low, lagging white and black voters. And so if that were to change, that would also be a dynamic to kind of look for for the 2016 election. I think that I think the Republican Party at this point is at a, is a bit of a crossroads because you have elements within the party who definitely have the potential to seek out Hispanic voters because of, of it, this is something we talked about before. George W. Bush won the Hispanic vote in 2004, helped him win, also got a significant number in 2000 as well. And it, it seems like right for right now, the Democratic Party has kind of a, a lock on it as long as candidates keep making comments, like even Dr. Ben Carson made a comment the other day about his, his one Hispanic friend that he has, which is you know just awkward. They, they, just, they just keep making a lot of awkward statements where just it makes people cringe. And then those people who actually might identify more with the, with the policies, the, the social conservatives amongst, amongst Hispanics, which doesn't mean that they all vote the same way because you've got your evangelical Protestant, you've got your Catholics, but um, are end up voting for the Democratic Party because they feel that party cares a little bit more about them. And so it seems like a, like an opportunity if I were a Republican strategist to want to want to get those those voters on my uh, on my rosters. And I, I think they're they're trying to, but again, as long as you still have what I'd call sort of the circus show right now, with candidates making comments left and right, that's that's not gonna it's not gonna happen. That's why I think you're gonna end up having a candidate who's much more. If you end up with someone like Jeb Bush, he's got a great potential to possibly get the Latino vote because of the fact that he he his rhetoric is much more moderate. It's softer. He speaks Spanish. He's been trying to court the, Span the, the Latino vote, but now finding himself in a bit of a pickle in the, in the primary season, trying not to alienate the base of the Republican Party as well. So I just I just think it's we're, we're in a really interesting time where we're going to see just some major shifts in the way that people are voting and, and, and what they're voting on. So. Okay. Oh, go ahead. Okay. How about a round of applause? And I'll just say one more thing and then we're done. There is still time for you to register to vote if you've never voted. That's coming this winter will be uh, primary. If you don't know where to go, go talk to the nice librarians at that desk over there and they will help you find information to get registered. We're happy to do that. Thank you for coming. Have